Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. Today we are joined, as always, by Michael, our resident ephesiologist. I am Andrew Johnson, associate pastor at Neartown Church, and we have the pleasure today of being joined by Robert Elkin, the Director of Training at City to City in New York. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's great to uh, it's great to be joining you. I've had the pleasure of um, sitting in with, get, getting to know Dr. Cooper some over the past few months, and uh, I've actually listened to several of these podcasts. They've been very, very interesting and enlightening, and so uh, it's a pleasure to be a part of it today. We always like interesting and enlightening. Those are good <laughs> words. We hope they hold true. Yeah, well, I think that I think they're going to. So, Robert, um, I, I gave you know the title director of training city to city in New York, but um, that doesn't really help us get to know you. So, so what are some of the most interesting things that you would want somebody to know about you that they could, you know, oh, I, I know this now, and I understand. I can listen through to Robert through this lens. So, who are you, Robert, outside of this podcast? Um, sure. Yeah. So I live in Brooklyn, um, and I've lived in Brooklyn for almost 18 years now. Um, I'm married to Sarah. Uh, she's actually born and raised in Brooklyn, uh, and she is Brooklyn through and through, and I love her for it. Uh, and uh, we moved, the, let's see, she's from Brooklyn. Uh, we've lived here 18 years. My, We have a son, Atticus, a daughter, Hope. Uh, they both are New Yorkers as well. Uh, so I'm like the lone non-New Yorker in my family. Um which is a bit scary sometimes. I feel like I get taken advantage of sometimes, but that's fine. <laughs> that's, um, that's good. Yeah, especially by my daughter. Uh, she's really something else. But uh, anyway, she my... thinks like, Dad, you don't understand. You're not from New York. Oh, yeah. I mean, she wouldn't. She the, the thing is, she doesn't understand that she's from New York. She just has she just carries that in her personality. Uh, so she's constantly uh, staring. She calls it a downstairs, which is like a stare down, but she just has it backwards. Uh, so she constantly, at least once a day, uh, stares me down for something dumb I've said or done. <laughs> and she's seven. So uh, anyways, quite the family I have. Um, uh, but yeah, we, I, my wife and I planted two churches together in Brooklyn. Uh, the first one in 2005, the second one in 2012. The first one actually uh, closed. Uh, it blew up, not in a good way, uh, and closed in 2012. And uh, we actually felt the calling to start another one. Um, and so we started a second one and the second one, uh, was just really a beautiful kind of missional expression. And that's where it was honestly in the, I'm, I'm very like pioneering at heart, um, very like naturally sort of risk-taking. So the first church we moved here, like without training or pretty much any very, very few resources, didn't know anybody, didn't really know what we were doing. Uh, and the second one, uh, was when I really started to learn and understand more about uh, like missional theology, for lack of a, you know, it's a, we're oversimplified, uh, but started trying stuff, um, start, really started like acting like a missionary in a, in a way. I didn't really have that terminology then, but uh, but we saw lots of really cool things happen uh, here in Brooklyn. And so um, the second church, after about five years, I, I started feeling a calling to like serve uh, other church planters here in New York and have that opportunity with City to City. So I've been with City to City since 2017 now in New York. So that's a little little bit about me. Okay, so this isn't entirely not the reason we had you on the podcast, but as a failed church planter, um, I'm really, really excited now. Uh, what was, uh, without, you know, naming names and throwing people under the bus, uh, what, what was the thing that probably maybe one or two things that kind of led to the blowing up of the first one? And then why was the pain not so great that you were excited to come back and do it again? Yeah, but before you answer that, Robert, <laughs> just so you know, we don't like you because you failed at church planting. No, uh, no. But 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 we're grateful uh, for the stories that you might have and share with others. Yeah, it's funny because my second church really was like, in, in human terms, wildly successful. But most people want to learn more from my failure, to be honest. Uh, so I'm not at all surprised. By that, and I think that I learned more in the failure and in the restart than any any other any anything else I experienced. That two year window, uh, and there's a lot that I can't 
there's a lot that I can't or won't say about that. Uh, mm -hmm. And honestly, I would say that the experience that I had with God in closing and restarting is like hallowed ground for me. Mm. Um, and mm. I think you, I think that's why uh, my wife and I felt like doing it again was because of the way that we met God in the failure um, mm. was so life-changing because I had never, you know, I talk to church planters all the time now about like you're a child of God before you're a church planter for God, you know, that kind of, that kind of stuff, which is like rolls off my tongue now, but I didn't really believe that mm. when I failed the first, when the first church closed, it just wrecked me that like the thought that I had failed God just wrecked me and failed a bunch of people who loved right, right. in me. And to sit, my son was just born. He was new, newly born, and I didn't know at the time, but he, he had he had he had autism and other things going on that made it just. He was like, um, he wouldn't sleep. There was all sorts of stuff going on with him. My wife's going off to work every day, and I'm sitting. We had this like basement apartment that was super dark and gloomy, and it's like the winter time. And I would just sit in the basement and like hold my son and try to get him to go to sleep, and like literally just like it felt like wrestling with God is the best way I can describe it. Mm. Um, but what I came out of that, like really being feeling like God just telling me like, Robert, I love you no matter what. I love you the same, like whether you failed or succeeded. And like I, just feeling like God saying, I'm so proud of you for doing this crazy thing that you did was, and all of that's like that gospel stuff, you know, that right. like in the city city world we talk about like just kind of like it's just part of our language but it really became part of my being part of my like the way that I viewed myself as a failed church planter so that was a big part um I could talk I could talk all day about that um but I think the other thing was that we in many ways the first it was in a neighborhood in Brooklyn called Williamsburg and Williamsburg in 2005, it was kind of like the birthplace of hipster culture um, almost 20 years ago. So hipsters mm -hmm. like kind of just everybody pretty much knows what a hipster is. But like 20 years ago in Brooklyn, that was like a new thing. And it was honestly like being birthed. So here we are. We showed up in Williamsburg in 2005 and hipster culture is being birthed. And I'm like pretty artistic and a bit out there. So I was like jiving with it. But also we're trying to figure out how to start a church for hipsters uh, before we even really knew what a hipster was. And we, and we sort of did it. We didn't really do it, but in the transition from the first church to the second church, what I realized, and this, and this is a whole learning journey that I could talk about for a long time, but I realized that like God didn't show up in the neighborhood when we showed up and like God wasn't only working among the hipsters, but there was actually this like generations of like Dominicans and Puerto Ricans and African-Americans and all sorts of other people groups and ethnicities and cultures that have been living in this neighborhood for decades. And they actually had, there were actually church plants that had started in, in my own neighborhood that I had no idea 50 years before. And there were grandmas who had been part of those church plants 30, 40 years before. And I'm getting to know them. And I remember it clicked. It, most of these things clicked with my wife before me. And I remember one day she said, what if, and oh, sorry, I'm back up a little bit. There was a guy named Juan who lived out in front of our apartment and he lived in the neighborhood his whole life. Uh, he was an addict and he was so friendly to our kids though, my son. And I remember my wife one day said, what if we started a church for Juan? Hmm. What if this church could be for like the hipsters and the old timers and we could actually see them come together in one church. And that was like the vision for the second church that made me say, okay, let's do this again. I don't think we wouldn't have started another church for hipsters. This is incredible. Well, thanks for joining us for our podcast. Because uh, it's all downhill from here because that was incredible. Thank you so much for uh, sharing that part of your story with us. And I, I love, well, there's so many parts of it that I love, but I really, I resonate deeply with the difference between the theology and the language that we use and we confess because it's on paper <laughs> and, and we teach it and we talk about it and we're really amped about it until it kind of becomes our story. And then there's mm -hmm. that wrestling for uh, what is that difference between that confessional belief and that functional belief when, when God really is all you have. 
uh, when you really understand yourself as a child of the king. And that becomes the most exciting thing about yourself. Mm. Uh, not, not that anything you've done, achievements, titles. I love that you referred to that as hollowed ground. Um, mm. when, when we talk to people about our failed church plant and the things that went into how it collapsed and our involvement in it, I mean, when I start telling those stories, my heart rate goes up mm. and I start remembering faces and pain that we went through and it, it hurts all over again. And then by the time I get mm, about halfway through the story, I, I typically say, I, we wouldn't trade this for anything. Mm-hmm. Like we'd go through it again um, mm-hmm. because God became more real. Our, our excitement and love for him was deeper. Uh, and kind of that affirmation of, no, this, this really is why we're doing what we're doing. It's him. It's, it's his joy. It's his glory. It is uh, the fullness that he brings to all humanity. Um, one really crappy church planting experience doesn't mean uh, that all of that's not true now. Mm-hmm. It's truer than ever. Mm-hmm. So my goodness, Robert, I am so glad to have you on our podcast today uh, mm-hmm. to hear that. Uh, but none of this was why we asked you to be on uh michael it was it was a little over two years ago you matt and i sat down on episode 59 for those who would want to jump back in the time machine or scroll down on their podcast feeder and uh, listen again and we discussed the state of theology report that came out so for people who didn't listen to episode 59 michael what is the state of theology report well, it's a it's a uh, interesting study. I, I would refer to it as an observational study um, that began, I think, in 2016, uh, with a survey of Americans. About three thousand of them, a random survey um, questionnaire, and uh, they were the questions were focusing on what do Americans believe, and it, um, it showed some very interesting data in terms of those beliefs. And so we've, I've been following this state of theology uh, since then, uh, since its beginning, and really curious about the trends that we're seeing in regards to uh, what Americans believe. And, uh, and so started in 2016, uh, they released a study in 2018, 2020, this is when we recorded episode 59. And then, boy, 2022 just snuck up on us, and all of a sudden, I'm getting my feed f- filled with reports on the state of theology, and and uh, and so I, I thought, gosh, it'd be great to get somebody that has boots on the ground in one of the largest cities in the world to uh, get their perspective on some of the things that we're seeing reported. As I mentioned, it's an observational study. So the study is just simply observing what Americans believe over time. And uh, and it can, or at least some, as they're looking at this study, will dial in more specifically to the evangelical population. And, and, uh, and you get into some problems with that because the, the sample size of evangelicals is significantly smaller, of course, than the sample size with the general population, but even so, it's revealing some uh, significant trends that have remained consistent since 2016, and they're concerning trends, frankly, uh, in regards to what evangelicals believe, and um, and so, yeah, so we're going to talk about that for a, a bit here on this podcast, and then think perhaps about what does it mean for us as we're looking forward in for church planting in particular but um in for the state of christianity in north america and uh, perhaps we can get into the question of what what might we learn from the early church that would be helpful for us as we're navigating uh, these particular trends okay so let's put that question on the shelf because we'll come back to it i think after we bandy about on some of these questions. Um, Robert, Michael uh, mentioned somebody like you, boots on the ground. Um, often on a physiology, 
both in in the book and on the podcast, we're going to talk about the contextual place that we do ministry, right? Like everything is contextual. And um, so in your context in Brooklyn, as you looked at this survey, what were one or two of the results of this survey that you thought, wow, this is fascinating specifically for my context? What were some of the um, results that you were looking at that intrigued you specifically because of where you are? Um, yeah, I think there there were a, there were a few. I think related to who God is and what God's doing in the world in particular, I thought were very insightful for New York. And New York is like a it's in, you know it's 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 a context in and of its you know it's a, it's its own ecosystem. We have our own sort of a like view of our own city and all this kind of stuff. And so I think like what's happening in the evangelical world uh, in North America does feel pretty separate in a lot of ways from New York. Like New York feels like it kind mm. of its own thing. A lot of what I see mm. happening in evangelicalism, I don't really see happening in New York. And even like reading some of the stuff that Ed Stetzer has been talking about and, and they've been learning and research they've been doing. Um, but I do think that like some of the things related to who Jesus is, um, who the Holy Spirit is, what 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 their activity in the world is, I thought were particularly uh, helpful for church planters in New York, uh, because I even wondered how many church planters in New York would sort of sign where where they would fall on on some of these questions actually, based on their lived experience here in New York. That was, those were some of the questions that were rattling around in my head. Okay. So what were some of the specific questions uh, that were posed to people taking this survey uh, that, again, you referenced the ones, the thoughts about God, thoughts about the Holy Spirit, what specific ones, and then the results, uh, what were the ones that stood out for you? Worship, like worshiping in a church, like having to be a member of a church having to go to church. That certainly was yeah. a big one. Uh, I think social issues that, that when I'm talking to church planters in New York, like the, 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 the cultural issues um, are massively like front and center for them. As far as like the people in their church and outside of the church, just like, how do we deal with like all sorts of cultural issues that are happening in the world? Like that is, that is like, uh, such a hot, such a church planners are really wrestling with how to how to how to talk about cultural issues from the front, how to disciple those sorts of things. So then, when you realize like how uh, actually evangelicals around the country are dealing with a lot of the same things, yeah. Here, here's an interesting example of that in terms of social issues. Uh, of course, we know over the past. Uh, if not more than a decade uh, or close to a decade, that gender identity has been one of those things front and center, not only um, in our society, but among evangelicals as well. And so one of the questions is asking about uh, human identity and, and sexuality, and they're observing that over time that uh, U.S. adults are increasingly affirming the right for people to identify as they as they feel. Um, and so in 2016, uh, 38% of uh, U.S. adults agreed with the idea that they could, uh, th that identity was a matter of choice. It, that stayed pretty consistent in 2018 and 2020. In 2022, 42% of U.S. adults are agreeing with the idea that gender identity is a matter of choice. And so we're, we're seeing, you know, a, a move toward uh, th this notion that uh, people can choose their uh, identity, um, and that's increasingly accepted. The same in regards to homosexuality, that uh, um, the question was, or the statement was, the Bible's condemnation of homosexual, homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. And so in 2016, it was 42% who agreed. In 2022, it's 46% who agree with that statement. And so we're seeing a real shift, a social shift on some of these uh, issues of identity, morality, and, and so forth. Yeah, I think in 2016, 
church planters and probably pastors could definitely get away with not really kind of like acting like this wasn't really happening. Like these shifts weren't really happening. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think in 2022, I have church planters and pastors telling me that June pride month is their most by far most stressful month of the year. And they're considering like not even having church those months, like just going out in the community and like serving the community just to show the community that they do actually care about people and they do care about people's needs. Like the, even just like having church is like so stressful. Uh, but it's not just from people. It's not just from non-Christians. And that's, that's what I think part of what this is highlighting is that Christians as well are starting to say the same things that non-Christians have been saying. And they're starting to like say, take the same stances. And they're not just thinking the same thing, but they're carrying this, a similar posture. So like Christians are actually getting angry at their pastors for not being affirming, for instance. And that's what's happening in New York, which is, I mean, that 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 has shifted very rapidly, I think, in the last probably four to five years. Uh, where you're seeing this and, um, you know, I'm not, we're, well, in a way, we're not one of the coastal towns, but in fact we are because Houston jokes and we call ourselves third coast. Um, like we are the fourth biggest city in the U S and, uh, all of us collectively were really sad that we didn't overtake Chicago at the last census. We thought we would. So in the next census, Chicago, we're coming for you. Um, but do you feel that what you're observing in New York, and I think what I'm observing here in Houston, does it fall more in line kind of with the path that we have observed in Europe, where it it seems like it's continuing to move to that very post-Christian, where a lot of the assumptions that we all, well, I say we, I grew up in the Midwest. So that, that corn fed theology, like that's, I, I understand that entirely. Um, that is my ethos. So to go into those bigger cities where that isn't the assumption and that isn't the norm, uh, do you feel that what you're observing in New York is a whole lot more common to what we observe of Christianity in Europe than in the rest of America? I think so. I mean, the the difference from my perspective is, is that we're handling it more like a teenager. Mm. Wow. It's, it's, it's like, um, we're, we're rapidly becoming more like Europe, but we're teenagers, you know, Mm -hmm. like we being like North America and even, even New York. And that's where I think like in Europe, in Europe, like when I talk to European church planters and leaders, there's that, there's that assumption like, okay, we're, uh, this, where we are is very post-Christian. Um, but they're not having they're not having to deal with a lot of the just it's not like as tenuous mm. as it is for us because it's just like we're dealing with like immaturity and and I don't and I'm not just saying we're teenagers like North America's teenagers I think the church in North America is also like a teenager like we don't have the some of the whether it's courage or wisdom the things that you get with age that allow you to handle difficult times and difficult sort of situations. I don't know, what do you guys think of that? That's like one of my observations yeah. and thoughts. Well, I, I think that's an, I mean, it's an interesting observation and not meant to use the word interesting in, uh, in any, not any positive obscure, sense, ob- obscure <laughs> way. But um, yeah, because, you know, as I think about Europe, I mean, we need to have probably another European church planter on here uh, to talk about this. But it seems like to me that Europe, um, the shift in Europe to a post-Christian culture began in the mind rather than in society. So meaning that it was an intellectual shift before it was a social shift. And because there were challenges with liberal theology and higher criticism and these types of things that were challenging kind of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And that, I mean, that begins in the 1940s and perhaps even before the 30s, 40s, 50s. And you have the war and those kinds of things, that two wars uh, that were challenging 
the very idea, can Christianity make a place better when you have Christian nations fighting against each other? Um, and so there were there were all there were those kinds of uh, intellectual uh, assumptions being made, uh, and then uh, and then alongside of that, you know, you begin to have the social uh, the changes that we saw in Europe as well. It seems like to me, and maybe I mean maybe it could be that we're seeing something similar in the U.S. with an intellectual shift in regards to belief. Um, although I, it seems to me that these things, the intellectual as well the, as the sh- social, are really ha- happening uh, almost in parallel, if not the social outpacing the intellectual. Um, because that's what, I mean, that's some of the things that this survey, the State of Theology survey, are revealing about belief in God. Um, uh, it, it's clear that the majority of Americans in the United States no longer hold to the Trinity uh, as the the co-equal uh, Godhead of one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who are uh, co-equally in relationship with one another, yet at the same time, they're one. Um, and so that belief, it seems clear, uh, has gone by the wayside or is on its way to go by the wayside. And I think more alarming is that that belief in the Trinitarian nature of God is beginning to wane even among evangelicals. And so the survey was revealing that um, uh, close to a majority, a little bit more than a majority of evangelicals believe that Jesus is created. And uh, of course, this was, I mean, these are debates, as you both know, that go back historically to the Christological controversies of the second and third century, especially in the fourth century, as we get into the ecumenical councils and the defense of the nature of Christ and uh, and of the Trinity. Um, so these are, I mean, these are have long uh, illustrious uh, illustrious heritages, I suppose you might be able to say. But and then we're seeing that about the Holy Spirit as well. The Holy Spirit is a force; He's not personal. Um, and uh, and again about Jesus, I think one of the more alarming. Uh, outcomes of this survey is that Jesus is a great teacher, uh, but he's not God. And so you have this, and I described this yesterday, uh, talking with a pastor, this Gandhi-esque idea of who Jesus is. You know, uh, Gandhi criticized uh, Christianity uh, by his his, uh, frequently uh, quoted quip that, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christianity. And yet Gandhi had uh, a very uh, distorted image of who Christ was uh, as he created Christ in his own image uh, as one who was nonviolent uh, resistor. Um, so anyway, I, I mean, so you have these very interesting shifts that are going on, perhaps parallel in terms of societal shifts, as well as intellectual shifts in terms of what we believe about who God is. Maybe a a thought or Robert, as we're talking about these things, do you feel when you looked at the state of theology report that it gave an accurate summation of what you see in New York City? Um, like it gave it gave words to what you're observing. Um, some of them, yes, some some yes, some no. Uh, I think that Jesus being a great teacher, for instance, like you just mentioned, Michael, I think that's probably most people's opinion of Jesus. But honestly, that would be like the best perspective of Jesus. Yeah, that's Whereas a positive I actually, one. <laughs> I actually think like maybe in America, that would be the neck, that would be like the bottom end is like Jesus is a great teacher and it can go, only go up from there. Whereas in New York, I feel like that's the top end. So it's like, the best version you would ever find of anybody having the best like idea of anybody that you would ever imagine in New York of having of Jesus is like, he's a great teacher. Does that make sense? Whereas Mm -hmm. I feel like the survey says that's like, wow, look how far down we've gone. People just view Jesus as a great teacher. 
I would actually look at that in New York and be like, wait, like you would actually engage with Jesus as a great teacher. That's like a, a win. So let's work from there. That would be like one of the differences. Did I explain that clearly? No, it, it totally makes sense. I think that's what I think that's probably even why I was asking the question, because there are certain aspects of the state of theology that might be true for America. Right. Overall, like you're saying, like that corn fed uh, mentality uh, again that I have, I'm not talking down about that. It's just lots of the parts of the country. They aren't there yet mm -hmm. where you are. And you're saying, gosh, if we could get there. Yeah, that'd be incredible. That's why when I when I started off saying like just ideas of Jesus and God, I thought it was so fascinating that so many people still believe in a Trinity. Like in New York, like I just I can't I goodness all the people I know in New York that aren't Christians, lots and lots of people. I mean, maybe maybe you could count on one hand that they would even have have an idea what the Trinity is, much less believe in it. Mm. I would just be hoping that they have any kind of like spirituality. Like we're trying to, I'm trying to connect with people. I just, what's your spirituality level? You, you know what I'm saying? So that would be one of the differences. And I do wonder if like Gen Z's and younger millennials nationwide would fall more in line with like what we see in New York than what would be shown in that report. Guess... That would be something I'm curious about. Right. And I think something that you're bringing up is, is I think we've hopped over it. But again, to clarify, Michael, you're saying that or have said the report is saying this is what evangelicals believe, right? So this is, according to this report, the people who are answering it are the people who are at church or who claim to be Christians. Is that correct? Yeah, well, they would claim they would self-identify as evangelicals. Right. But again, as I mentioned at the top of the program, um, there are some issues with the sample size when we drill down into the evangelical category. And so it, it's it's a smaller sample size. And so the reliability of it would be uh, would have some would have some questions. But at the same time, I think what we have to realize is that this is, again, this observational study that begins in 2016, they've consistently done it every two years, and that observation has remained consistent since 2016. Um, and that's what's interesting. And so I think there's enough there that we need to pay attention to the way in which we're talking about Jesus um, how we're communicating about him from our pulpits, our Sunday school classes, our small group Bible studies, and uh, the way in which we're presenting him to the public as well. Um, I, I think, I think, at least as I look at that survey and the length of time that uh, it it spans, that those are things that we have to be thinking about in regards to who Jesus is and how we communicate about him. Well, I think one of the things that Robert is bringing out, and Michael, thank you for that clarification, is that we, as Christianity, evangelical Christianity, we have begun discipleship at, say, well, I'm just going to say point D, right? And saying all of America assumes and believes, or at least has a familiarity with these things. So I can jump in on D and then begin discipleship moving forward. And Robert, a lot of things that you're bringing out, you're like, we're not at D. We're not at B. We're at negative A. And so discipleship is going to have to significantly ramp up what we are helping people understand and know about the true and loving, gracious God, helping to get them to there. There's a lot more now, I guess, in in what discipleship should hold, or rather what pastors need to at least consider of the people in your congregation don't believe all of these things. You can't preach assuming everybody is on that same page with you. They aren't. They're way back there. And so you're going to yeah, have a lot to of, do a lot. Yeah. And I think when you, if so, sometimes, sometimes I listen to a fair amount of preaching in New York, uh, like church planters and pastors. And a lot of times my main observation is you is is this you're answering questions that nobody is asking mm. that's like my number one like observation about preaching in new york in particular you're answering questions that nobody is asking and i think that it's because they're answering questions at d but that's that, that's not those aren't the questions that people are actually coming with 
And when you start there and make assumptions that they're already to D, they're lost before you even start. So, and the, here's the other thing. That's only preaching. You know, like have, if America believes Jesus yes. is a teacher, have we yes. actually presented a Christianity with a great teacher? Because those are all of our people are the great teachers. Like, and I think that's the other sort of like the missional movement that has to happen to engage with New York or America where it is, is that, you know, people want to not just hear it and understand it. They want to experience and they want to see it. They want to feel it. They want to, people actually, I with my second church, I found that giving people like giving people an, an experience uh, of like doing life like Jesus would do it, which is way oversimplifying, was actually way more compelling for them to draw them to Jesus than like a really clear explanation of something about Jesus. So it has to be like more holistic than just mm -hmm. an explanation as well, which is part of that getting to D. Like if people are already at D, just a little bit more explanation will like keep them moving. But to go further back, it has to be more than an explanation. It has to be a more holistic discipleship. A demonstration. Yeah. 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 Good. And this is this is what we talk about. Uh, Andrew and I talk about in our identity-based discipleship course. You need to have the intellectual, the experiential, as well as that sense of community where all of those things can uh, be observed um, that is important in discipleship. But what I'm hearing you say is that, and I, and I would agree, that I think there are going to be periods of time in a society where one might take a precedent uh, over another in terms of the way in which we, we engage our communities. And so the experience, giving people the experience of what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be in community, uh, it sounds as if that might be where we are, but not to not to uh, solely focus on that at the expense right. of the, the cognitive, the intellectual, because that'll give us the foundation that will help to undergird our experience in our uh, our identity in a community as well. It's that it's that again, as we've talked about the believe belong right i think that is is so huge is that that communal experience that us together as the redeemed or even bringing somebody in who doesn't know jesus uh, one of the best witnesses of the church is to say this is who we are and this is what we look like as we are being shaped into christ's image together that should be something that somebody says i don't have that i want that unfortunately as our state of theology has said, we spend a whole lot of time arguing about other things. And people say, I don't want that. <laughs> I don't want that to be um, how I'm known. I don't want my life to look like that. And so that is actually almost now the other side of that same wonderful coin. You know, you have the one side of belonging to the church and this renewed life uh, experience of joy and fullness and peace in Christ. Um, the ability to suffer and yet have joy. Unfortunately, the other side of the coin is so many people saying, I see how you guys talk about your politics. I, I see how you show up in the world and how you treat people. And it isn't good. And I don't yeah. want that. Yeah. And so the yeah, cognitive you know only goes so far. Yeah. The belong, you know, the believe, the belong, um, it, it has to go together. Yeah, it absolutely has to go together. And I'm I'm reminded of our podcast with Alan Hirsch and Mike Frost uh, a couple months ago in, in talking about their book, Read Jesus. It begins there. If we don't have a good understanding of who Jesus is, then it doesn't matter how we belong in community or or how we behave. Uh, so if we get Jesus wrong, we're gonna we're gonna get these other things wrong as well. And so, Alan is fond of saying, get your Christology right, and then your your missiology is going to follow, and your ecclesiology is going to follow that. Um, and and I think he's right. I, let's get Jesus right, and then we can properly engage people in our communities with the heart of Christ, and uh, and really connect with where they are. And, and then we can begin to think about, well, what shape does the church take then? 
that will give expression to this experience that now people are having with the, the Jesus that we know from the New Testament. So speaking of New Testament, as we promised, Michael, we would get back to the question of how can we look back uh, to the early church, how they dealt with some of these things. And uh, even on my poorly walked through example of jumping in at D, right? Like the early church was dealing with an entire society that wasn't where they were hoping you know, to talk about the newness of Christ and the renewal. Um, how can we look back at the early church, not just the one that we see in the Bible, but in the first and second, third centuries, how can we look back at that and take some pointers on how we can now deal with what we are seeing today? Michael, Robert, what, what do you think? I, I mean, my initial thought, I, I, I'm actually dying to hear what Michael thinks. I think he's got a lot better stuff to say on me than this one. So I'm not sure why I'm jumping in first, but my <laughs> initial, bold. but my initial thought is one of the, one of the answers I think is getting smaller. I just think that giving people space to process in community and experience Jesus in community and follow Jesus in community was like how the, how the first second century, third century church exploded was it was it was in authentic community not expert culture and i think that like we can't we don't more theological experts who are really winsome probably is are, is it only going to get us so far but i think more authentic communities where people are um walking together towards jesus christians and non-christians alike and actually processing life um through the lens of the gospel through the lens of the scriptures to me that's like it, at the very least one of the answers of what we can learn yeah i i mean i would echo that robert i think you're right i think with the beauty of a smaller community and it, and it's not that we're advocating house churches that i i don't think the answer is just simply starting house churches and seeing those multiply around the world i think that's a part of the answer and i and i think it's always it's always good for us to think of a both and there's going to be a need for the, the body of Christ to gather in a larger group, but, but there's definitely a need for the body of Christ to gather in those smaller groups as well. Um, those communities where there can be more accountability, uh, there can be more intimacy in regards to how we actually behave as Christians to one another and how then our neighbors can observe how we're behaving as Christians to one another. I think, I think the power of observation uh, by the world outside looking inside at us is uh, significant, and, and we don't speak enough about that. But that's certainly one of the issues that we see uh, about the early church, both in the New Testament and then going into the second and third centuries, is that there was deep concern for the way in which believers interacted with one another. It's one of the major themes of the Apostle Paul's writings, for sure. Uh, but we see it as well in uh, the later writings. In First Clement, for example, where the church in Corinth is chastised once again for the disunity. And in fact, uh, the, the, the authors of First Clement make this statement that the church in Corinth is actually causing people from the outside to blaspheme Jesus because of the way in which they're behaving. And, uh, and so I think, you know, looking at that early church and the things that they did, uh, is important. And I think one of the primary things that the church focused on in not only the, you know, the New Testament church, but going into the second century is who Jesus is uh, and having a proper understanding for him as both divine and human, uh, as uh, the, the savior of the Jew and the Gentile. Uh, as superior to Jewish religion as well as Greek religion. And those things were absolutely fundamental for the beliefs of that early church. And, uh, and I think it's safe to argue that it's from that belief then 
that they were able to do the things that Jesus would do in the community. And that's what gave them the respect that they had in the community, because people saw that these Christians were actually living like Jesus lived. And uh, and that was a compelling testimony to uh, many at, at that time. Something that I'm noticing right now, as I look back, um, there are so many things that we are trying to answer questions that nobody is asking. And I think part of that is uh, might not be spending enough time with the people who are in our communities. Uh, we look back at that that early church that they were answering the questions that the people around them were asking because they that that was their every day, right? Those were their communities. They knew what was the concern on the table, and they were going to talk about that. And today, we are taking in podcasts and we are watching other churches and other sermons, and so we are engaging on something that might be happening somewhere else or a topic that sounds like fun. <laughs> Let's preach on this. Um, and, and I'm not saying it's not fun, but you're talking to people at D and they're at A or negative A, right? And and so it's just kind of like, that's neat. That just doesn't, it doesn't matter. And I think looking back to the early church is an encouragement to get in and stay in and hear the heartbeat of the community. Hmm. Um, I just watched uh, it's like a 38 minute little documentary called Godspeed. And the theory being that we might actually need to slow down to catch up with God, um, that God walked the earth at three miles an hour when he was here and to slow down and to actually um, hear the heartbeat of God as he moves slowly among the people. And that we need to slow down as well and listen to the people who are around us to slow down and say, you know, what is going on in your life? How are you doing? What are some of the things you are wrestling with and struggling with? And so that when we as pastors do compose those sermons, we are not composing the sermon because we heard it preached really well by Tim Keller or our other favorite preacher, but instead we're preaching that sermon because I heard Doris talk about this this week, and I know that this is what she's struggling with and what she's asking. And Juan had these questions. And so I, I'm unintentionally answering their questions as I'm in the text because they are what I am thinking. They are what I am feeling. They are the people that I am writing this because I want to make sure that they understand the good news of Jesus and why he is good news to them here in this context not a nameless face that we want to get points across. I think that's something that we can very much learn from the early church and taking that missiological, theological bent um, towards them. Yeah, I think there. I think it would be pretty easy to read this report and think the church needs to pull out more to get our theology right. Like we're becoming too much like the world. And what I heard you say, which I think is really insightful, is maybe actually it's the other way around. Like, but it but not just disengaging from the culture and what we might be afraid of and think of seeing the churches going that same direction. But what if we re-engaged at a personal level, at a community level, at a contextual level, to go to to go to come back to that posture of like listening and being curious. Like, what is it that you've experienced? Like, uh, you, Doris, you just mentioned like a random name, you know, like, why is it that Doris is coming to church? Why is it? What is it that Doris is going through? Doris probably is not come to church. But what is it that Doris is going through? Like, what's Doris's story? Like, what, um, you know, come back, coming back, not disengaging, but actually re-engaging, but in a different way. Instead of like engaging with the with the posture of like we have everything right, they have everything wrong. So we've got to like combat, which I think is like what a lot of the church is doing. Re-engage, but from a posture of curiosity, humility, um, uh, listening, and then like that that it's it's so, so much of it's like a different posture of engagement. I think. Mm, yeah, I like that. Well, Michael, uh, as we land the plane, are there any further or final thoughts that you want to have as an encouragement to our listeners based on this state of theology survey that we've talked about? 
Well, I think the one thing that comes to mind is that these things do not take God by surprise. He he knows where we are. He knows the state of theology better than we do. Um, and uh, we can rest assured that no matter what the state of theology is, there's no way that we're going to thwart God's uh, plan and what his mission is. And so um, I think, though, it does give us reason to pause and think and uh, really dig in more deeply to evaluate how we're engaging our community and and uh, and yeah, I think take the advice of both you guys too of being curious, of humble listeners to our communities and uh, and posturing ourselves in such a way that we're not coming across as the arrogant person who seems to know everything. It, this one passage comes to mind in First Clement, uh, the chapter thirty. Uh, the writers say this, and I think this is a good place, a good summary of what we've been talking about. Um, he says uh, that let our praise be in God and not of ourselves, for God hates those who commend themselves. Let the testimony of our good deeds be spoken of by others, as it was in the case of our righteous ancestors. Boldness and arrogance and audacity belong to those who are cursed by God. Instead, those who act in moderation, humility, and meekness are blessed by him. And I think those are good good words from a uh, late first century uh, author. Well, with that encouragement towards humility and our drive towards being Christ-like, uh, Robert, Thank you very much for being our guest. Uh, Michael, thanks for the wisdom that you brought. Robert, if people want to engage with you and more of what you're doing in City to City, New York, um, how and where would they find you? Uh, yeah, we do um, a lot of training, a lot of coaching for church planters. So if you're a church planter in a city, uh, City to City has like a, a global presence in many of the big cities around the world. And so, uh, you know, hopefully City to City would serve you in some way uh, as you learn to do mission in the city that God's called you to. So yeah, it's been great to be a part of this today. Thank you. So glad that you were there. Seek out all the city to city stuff. I have spent a lot of time recently with a lot of city to city planters uh, from all over the world. And I'm very thankful for the ministry uh, that is through city to city and all the people in the places that they are blessing. Um, it is a joy. Uh, if you, listener, want to continue to engage, go look them up on the interwebs, look up City to City, and see how you can either support uh, or, or come for some training uh, through them. Uh, if you have been intrigued by this uh, State of Theology survey, but you wanted to get your eyes on it, just go to thestateoftheology.com, take a look at the 2022 survey, or the report, rather, and then look at previous results as well. And then if you want to continue to engage with us at Ephesiology, please do uh, check out past episodes that we have on our podcast. Uh, check out Michael's book called Ephesiology or engage with us on the social media spaces, uh, Facebook, Instagram, the Bird app for as long as it exists as you like. And we're just thankful that you walk this road with us. So uh, for Michael, Robert and myself, Thanks for being with us on Ephesiology.